0: Hello, good morning, and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for November 5th, 2017. Koyo Kubose here, so very, very glad you joined us. Oh, well, uh, yesterday I had been invited to speak at the local Fresno Unitarian Church, and uh, Saturday morning, 10 a.m. to noon, and The topic was American Buddhism. (laughs) So I brought my father's little pamphlet, American Buddhism, that he wrote in the 70s. And I also read uh, his statement that was printed in the 30th anniversary booklet of his temple in Chicago uh, in 1974, where he talked about his dream of establishing American Buddhism, not Indian Buddhism or Chinese Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism, but the uniquely American Buddhism communicated easily uh, to Americans and applicable in everyday life and so forth. Uh, and yet, a unique life way, non-dichotomous, non-dualistic, and so forth and it's nice to 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 give a talk, because then it requires you to organize your your thoughts a little bit. To you know, things are are pulled up out of your karmic background, one's karmic background, and so forth. And you say, "Oh yeah, that's right," and you're reminded of this and that. And uh, I was thinking about the Buddhist connection to Unitarianism and so many um, Americans who, well, you know, Americans that become interested in Buddhism, and we could see it in those that have applied to our lay ministry program. A lot of them are active in their local Unitarian churches. And I remember my father saying to uh, uh, people who, Japanese Americans who, we're moving to a to a place in in out of state where there was no Buddhist church. So what should they do? And he said, "Oh, find a Unitarian church, you know." And he was uh, exchange pulpit guest speaking with a lot of local Unitarian churches. Um, and in fact, he used to joke that one time, when the one Unitarian church was on a, had a ministerial search going on, they said. Oh, we'd like you. Would you consider being our minister? And he would chuckle at that. Um, And I know that the transcendentalists, New England transcendentalists like Thoreau and Emerson, laid kind of a foundation for what later became Unitarian Universalists and um, kind of a common sense, very humanistic, down to earth. Uh, philosophy, if you want to put it that way, or way of life, how to look at uh, spirituality. And um, I brought also a copy of um, my father's translation of his teacher, Reverend Haya Akegadasu's writings. And and this uh, translation was, was titled The Fundamental Spirit of Buddhism. But in this before his translation of these talks my father related uh, some of his memories with his teacher when before my father studied with him before he became a minister and so forth uh, Reverend Akagadosu came to America and visited the Oakland Church whose minister was a uh, disciple of his and uh, he was a young man in in Oakland. They were at that church in the a YBA Young Buddhist Association. He was maybe in his twenties, and uh, he had been given a book by Reverend Hata, who was the minister at the Oakland church, on the occasion when my father's grandmother died in Japan, and they had a memorial service in in Oakland, California, and, and Reverend Hatta gave him a book written by Reverend Akigata Sue. And my And as my mom says, that book changed my dad's life. You know, he was not from a minister's family or he didn't have any particular aspirations. He was a professional landscape gardener. He said he had two trucks and, and an assistant and 90 clients, you know. Um, but he decided to, he wanted to study under Reverend Akagadasu. So Reverend Akagadasu told him, well, okay, well, in order to prepare, you know, ministers need to be educated, so you better you know, go to college and so forth. And so he, he enrolled at the University of California at Berkeley, graduated with a degree in philosophy. And um, uh, Reverend Akigatazu said, you know, you should get married before you come to Japan, you know, so that you'd be settled down and everything. And so he and maybe not just for that reason, but uh he commuted down the to uh Fowler area. Fowler is just south of Fresno where my mom was born and raised. On uh her parents, my grandparents on my mom's side had a uh farm. They grew great Thompson grapes for raisins and um uh so so he they got married in nineteen thirty five, I think, in, in San Jose and uh and they went in nineteen thirty six to Japan and stayed at Reverend Akagarasu's temple in northern Japan and stayed there for five years. And he accompanied Reverend Akagarasu on his lecture tours in Manchuria and so forth. You Reverend Akagatazu was a pretty uh, famous person, and, uh, and um, but he when he was in Oakland, in and, and he was going on a tour. Reverend Hato was supposed to um, be his interpreter and guide, uh, but uh, local, uh, his one of his congregation members died, and he had to take care of a funeral. So Reverend Akagatazu said. Well, where's that Kubose guy? He'll, he'll, he could take me, you know, don't worry. So my father accompanied him on, I don't know how many weeks, trip across the United States. And Reverend Akigarasu was an admirer of Emerson and wanted to visit his grave in Concord. And in that fundamental spirit of Buddhism book, there's a photograph of them standing at uh, Emerson's grave in Concord. And so I sort of shared this be, with uh, my preliminary introductory remarks at the Unitarian Church when I spoke yesterday, and I showed them this photograph and and uh, the close connection with Unitarianism and uh, Buddhism and, and so forth. Um, there was some interesting local color, I guess, uh, in that in that fundamental spirit of Buddhism that my father shared some memories of his of his trip across the United States accompanying his teacher. One was that Reverend Akagadosu, they, you know, said make arrangements to stay in a very cheap hotel and a very luxurious hotel. It's good to experience the opposites. Isn't that interesting? You know, um, and one, to show his spirit, one time they were eating the lunch bag, lunch, uh, in a park, and there was a little river or sort of a canal that ran there. And um, Reverend Akagarasu as he got older, I don't know what the cause was, but his eyesight was failing. And there was a commotion going on nearby. And he said, what's going on? And my dad looked over and he said, oh, there's a a group of small boys. They, They caught this fish, and they have it on the land there, and he's flopping around the fish. He goes, What? And Reverend Akigadasu got so excited and he said, Take me over there, take me over there and he came and he, and he told the Reverend Akagadasu told the boys, oh, hey, oh, oh put that fish back in the water, put that fish back and the boys, you know, he was so he was so excited, so the boys oh they threw the fish back in there and you know, they were saying, Oh, but we just got him and then the Reverend Akigerasu told the boys, Well, see that fish swimming happily in the water? And then compare it to when he was suffering and flopping on the on the ground. Which do you like better? Which, you know, which is not? And so, oh, well, yeah. Um, you could see a sort of a spirit there, a strong spirit. Uh, Reverend Akigarasu uh, became the the president of Otani, who be, later became Otani, Buddhist University in Kyoto, Japan, which is a, which is the Buddhist college for his particular denomination of Higashi Honganji or Taniha in, uh, uh, in in Shin Shin Buddhist denomination. And again, he was uh, eyesight failing, and but after he gave a talk uh, lecture or whatever, and he. Was walking down the hallway. If someone was walking by, he'd reach out and he'd grab him and he said, "What did you think about today's lecture?" You know, he was always challenging <laughs> people uh, and encouraging them to to deepen their their you know, uh, education and spiritual understanding. Um, well. Uh, that's some of the memories that were elicited because of my having, my being invited to speak at the Unitarian Church. I want to un- introduce today's guest to give us a dimmer glimpse, Doug Cuyo. He's, he's retired, and he and his wife, Patty, they went through the program together, our late ministry program. They were part of LM4 group. And at that time, they lived in Camarillo, in uh, near Los Angeles. But now uh, retired, and up in uh, Washington area, Seattle area. And one of the interesting things that uh, Doug said was that he was—he knows he's too intellectual, and, and about learning about Buddhism. Um, and he said, "Yeah, if he went to heaven." And there was two doors. One was labeled heaven, entrance to heaven. And the other said, a lecture on heaven. He, he probably chose the door that says a lecture on heaven. He wants to learn about it, you know, rather than be in heaven. And that was, you know, kind of, a, kind of a humorous joke. But he also had an interesting story several decades ago. He just happened to meet, to be sitting next to my parents on an airplane flight. And of course they got to talking, he says, Oh, you're a Buddhist minister and so forth and so he was he was interested and he was talking to them and um when they parted he, he asked, you know, what what do you can you recommend if I wanna pursue my interest in Buddhism? And he said that my mother said, Well, you could read everyday suchness, you know, and so forth. And several decades later uh he learned about our lay ministry program at Bright Dawn here and, and he came to the program and this is how this is how the Dharma works in mysterious ways, you know. Um, so anyway, let's hear from Doug Cuyo today.
1: Hello everyone. Uh this morning I'd like to talk about what I've learned about faith. growing up I was not introduced to any particular religious denomination. I'm not sure what my mother was brought up to believe, but my father's father was a clergyman and educator, one of whose books, What Jesus Taught, is in my possession. He was pastor at the Third Unitarian Church in Chicago in the 1920s, but his beliefs were never handed down to me. Instead, due to a chance meeting with Reverend Guillaume and Minnie Kobosi on an airplane flight, I was eventually introduced to Buddhist teachings which, in the case of Bright Dawn, had their American roots in the Buddhist Temple of Chicago. This institution was founded by Reverend Kabose in 1944, the year my grandfather died. I always had an idea that Unitarians were a pretty mellow bunch, but for whatever reason, my father reacted violently to his religious upbringing and turned out to be a staunch atheist who instilled in us, us being me, my older brother and sister, The firm belief that the human mind, using reason, maybe with the help of philosophy, was all that was necessary, in fact, all that was available to address the fundamental questions we all struggle with. Notice that I didn't say successfully address. He was fond of poems like Invictus and Joaquin Miller's Columbus, which celebrated the heroic efforts of the individual against an uncaring universe. I guess he was more an existentialist than anything else, although that bleak philosophy didn't bring him much comfort either. Rugged individualism didn't work too well for me either. Although not in very good shape spiritually, I still had a lot of scorn for people who needed the crutch of religion to get by. Not me, thank you. I could be miserable all by myself without pretending there was something else out there. After all, one definition of an atheist is a man with no invisible means of support, Life had to bring me to my knees in order for me to realize that there was some flaw in the way I was thinking and living. Sure, I knew I was right, but other people were happy. And with only one life to live, which would I rather be? When I was introduced to Buddhism, it seemed to be made to order for someone of my particular temperament. I could accept its humanistic teachings, its psychology and philosophy, and never really have to mess with the touchy-feely spiritual stuff. Maybe that would come later, sort of by osmosis, after I had studied for a few years. Meanwhile, maybe I could learn Sanskrit. In When the Iron Eagle Flies, Ayakema describes my situation. She says, Few people are capable of wholehearted commitment, and that is why so few people experience a real transformation through their spiritual practice. It is a matter of giving up our own viewpoints, of letting go of opinions and preconceived ideas, and instead following the Buddha's guidelines. Although this sounds simple, in practice most people find it extremely difficult. Their ingrained viewpoints, based on deductions derived from cultural and social norms, are in the way. Grateful though I was for the gift of the Dharma, I still had reservations about the whole thing. Which brings me to the topic of faith. Now, faith is a tricky concept. People trying to convert you to their, their way of thinking often use it as an escape clause by saying that if their religion doesn't work for you, it's because you didn't believe in it enough to make it work. Circular argument, to be sure, but one I think is fundamentally correct. In the King James Version of the Bible, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. I take this to mean that you can't wait around for proof. You have to bring something to the party as well. In Buddhism, this commitment is traditionally demonstrated by taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the triple gem. During our lay minister for induction, I participated in the Trisarana ceremony and took the vows as sincerely as I could at the time. As time has gone on and I continue my haphazard practice, I have noticed a loosening of my critical mind. It seems less important to me to hang on to my deep-seated beliefs and prejudices, which my ego-driven mind insists is the real me, and observe the passing parade with some measure of acceptance and humor. One thing I'm bringing to the party is a rededication to the practice of meditation. I can easily become comfortable learning about Buddhism, but that falls short of true commitment. Being half in and half out doesn't cut it. It's kind of like riding a submarine. When it starts to die, you want to be in the submarine, not on it. For someone like me who tends to over-intellectualize anyway, meditation is a method for getting out of my head and tapping into an intuitive understanding. As I continue my practice, I'm starting to experience what in Sanskrit is called shraddha. Usually translated as faith, it can be taken to mean confidence in the rightness of something as it unfolds through personal experience. Can this be what Reverend Koyo calls the sweet smell of the dharma? So I'm still trying to figure a lot of this out and certainly don't pretend to have arrived at anything approaching enlightenment. But getting back to the poem, Columbus, I remember that it contains the repeated refrain, sail on, sail on, sail on and on, which sounds a lot like keep going, doesn't it? Thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts. And as we used to say in the 60s, keep the faith, baby.
0: Thank you very much. Very, very interesting, very good. I love the Dharma glimpses. Uh, you know, when uh, I was listening, faith is a troubling concept, and it's. I think the connotation of faith is different in Buddhism than in the idea, the common idea of blind faith that's uh, advocated in other religious approaches. Um, I want to to be more articulate about it myself. I'm not sure. Maybe trust. Uh, I was thinking about uh, somehow the, the the example of like nature, natural laws, or say the gravity, the law of gravity. Um, do you have faith in gravity? Now, that sounds a little strange, but we certainly have trust in gravity. Um, So much trust, complete trust in that we don't think about it all the time. We don't step, take a step and say, okay, I'm stepping down now and I'm taking another step uh, and everything's solid here. This planet has gravity and things aren't floating around. And of course, when it's all around us and, and, we live in it, then uh, you don't have to be thinking about it all the time. That's, uh, you know, very uh, uh, complete trust. That kind of faith, okay, even though you may not know physics or or be articulate about the, how gravity works, okay, you, you know, you, um, maybe something like that, okay. And talking about trust or being in it um, reminds me of a story that Renyo, who was a 16th century uh, follower in Nishin Buddhism, and uh, he was a very famous uh, reformer of movement. And, uh, and there's a story that one of his temple members very devout person came up to him after a Dharma talk and said, Oh, Sensei, you know, I, I'm really motivated. I really listen so devoutly to your words. and But I cannot seem to, to retain the teachings. It's sort of like I'm a wicker basket, and I put the teachings into the ba- my basket, but it just goes right through the... It's like water that goes right through the uh, the sieves of the of the basket, you know, the weaving, and so I, I'm really frustrated. And so Daniel said, "Oh, this is very simple. Here's what to do: instead of pouring water into the basket, just throw the whole basket into the water." Uh, <laughs> this is maybe is a sort of a different connotation of what might be called faith or trust, uh, uh, you, you become one with it. You're in it. You just throw yourself in. <laughs> and Because uh, you want to, okay? And rather than more or less a dualistic approach where you and the teachings are, are separate and you're trying to grab the teachings, hold on to the teachings, okay? rather than let the teachings become part of you. I remember some fellow ministers, they would order uh, some copies of Everyday Suchness and to give away when they made visitations to to their uh, congregation members. And one of them, he always said he would write uh, in the front, um, read this book seven times, until it becomes your flesh and bones, okay? That kind of a uh, idea, you know, uh, w- where you don't see it as something separate to understand and so forth, but you, well, it's sort of like eating, <laughs> you know? Uh, you, you don't have to eat the menu. It's not going to satisfy you. Even though the menu may have some beautiful pictures and everything, and are, is a very valuable tool when you're at a restaurant, okay, to see what they have, what you what, what what appeals to you, and so forth. Um, but you, you you have to have real food, okay. Um, and you can't really have, you have to eat your own food too. You don't want to eat something that's been chewed by somebody else. Huh? So I think you could have a lot of different analogies or examples that would talk about how you have to have some level of commitment or trust or faith, okay, um, in, in 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 something that becomes part of you, okay. Or another way to put it is that you don't hang on. Okay. When you're hanging on to something, that 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 means that there's you and what you're hanging on to, as opposed to an identity and becoming it. See, when you eat food, you always, you're always you you're very uh, purpose driven. You say, "Well, I got to get certain kind of food. I got to go get it. I got to open my mouth. I got to cook it. I got to." But once you eat it, it becomes you, literally. And you don't have to think about, okay, now digest the food. Okay, go to work now and nourish me. You know, uh, that nature of that process uh, can be an interesting analogy to how you can take something in and make it part of you and you don't have to think about it anymore. You know, it's not an object of thought. And in that sense, The mystics, I think, uh, have a valuable lesson. By mystics, I mean where they talk about the oneness in in the world of experience rather than always over-intellectualizing things. And over-intellectualizing means to divide into opposites. Yes, no, you know, existence, non-existence, creator, created, okay, parent, child, all these things whereas there are there are systems of thought it's not just it's not unique to buddhism but the non dichotomous non dual way is you know when you say teacher that automatically, automatically you know there's a student when you say parent you know there's a child okay there okay when there's life you know there has to be death when you're born you die okay. even though we put A hyphen between these opposite terms, good hyphen bad, fair hyphen unfair, life hyphen death. Uh, We should live in the hyphen, very dynamic place. As one person put it, you know, when you see a tombstone and you see the the birth year and hyphen, the death year, uh, date, and he says, that hyphen, that's where it was all at, you know. Um, and don't get too attached to the hyphen either. I mean, uh, maybe a slash is a better word. hyphen sort of divides the two opposites, but when you have life slash death, it shows you that there are two two sides of the of one thing and that slash means okay, and you don't have to get attached to the to the slash either. you could keep going talk about a double exposure you could talk whatever you know (laughs) that's all for today's broadcast till next time keep going and you have a wonderful day